thank you for coming out today and those joining us online as well. We're so excited you're here. You are not here by accident. Whether you stumbled in or not, you're not here by accident. This is a wonderful day to be here at Faith Christian Center. I just had a few things I wanted to follow up with. We had... uh, we were a part of yesterday. Well, man, it was a busy weekend at this center. We had uh, a, a school production uh, that was a combination of Barrington Christian Academy and our great Seacon Christian Academy, uh, providing a play called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. There was an actual car up here. Yeah, I got to see one of the performances. We thank uh, Michael Liberty and. Tom Hale from SCA2 that, that really helped put this together. So there was an average of attendance, about 300 people, and they had three of these over the weekend. And I think they locked the door at about 11.45 last night. So but we want to thank them for doing that. And in Warwick, Rhode Island yesterday, our Community Connections team uh, was working hard to serve at Hope Day. Hope Day, as we talked about that prior, is a national event uh, where they... Uh, I think it was about six or seven different churches uh, came together in a park to serve the community around them, to give out groceries, to do haircuts, uh, to give out shoes, uh, to have some games for the kids. Food was handed out. I was there for a little bit to talk with some of our volunteers, and uh, there was a lot of music going on. Uh, some of the statistics, statistics I got early this morning is it was about 900 people that came through the activity with the different churches. Yes. And at the end, you could go and meet with somebody, whether it was a pastor or somebody from another church, and just pray with them. And I think they had over 300 people praying with them, and there were some commitments that came out of that. So just in a local community at that Oakland Beach uh, over in Warwick. So, But you are a part of that with your support, and our Community Connections team worked hard on that. Another quick thing to promote, this is very much last minute, but it just came to our attention. We don't promote concerts that are not here much, but this one we felt we needed to. Somebody had talked with Pastor Ray the other day, and it's called Boston Mega Praise. It's Friday, June 9th. Not much notice, but Martha Minuzzi, Jacqueline Carr, Donald Lawrence, and Peter Thompson in Worcester at the DCU Center. If you're interested more, there's some flyers out by the Welcome Center. You can just grab them and go from there. I don't know how much tickets are. We don't know much more information about that. Uh, But definitely that's a jam-packed night. It's not in Boston. It's in Worcester. But check that out. Well, this is a privilege Mm. and an honor to be introducing somebody in a minute. But I have a long list of some acclimates I'd like to mention to y'all. So Dr. Mark Retland, who, as you know, is here today. He is the founder of Global Servants, which has been doing many missions across the world and even children's, uh, girls' homes in Taiwan and Ghana as well. Yes, Thailand, I'm sorry, uh, where they've been taking some of the girls off the streets, as you know, in those environments that can be subjected to different things that may not be good for them, uh, and brings them in and helps educate them and puts them on their way, and they're doing wonderful things outside of the U.S. doing that. Also, Dr. Rutland has been a president of two universities, Southeastern University in Florida 
and one that I kind of favor a little bit is ORU because my daughter's going there now. So he was president of both those universities, done miraculous things. He left them better than when he came into them. I can say that by far. And God has just richly blessed his life. One of his giftings is in leadership. Amen. Kind of need that in church occasionally, right? Leadership. Okay. And he is very gifted in that area. That's one of the ways I was drawn to him, my father and I. He helped us a little bit with some of the transitional things we did just recently. And he is just uh, a man of quite great wisdom, but yet he's funny too. So I think you'll enjoy him. Would you uh, please stand and put your hands... I do want to mention his book. Excuse me. I don't get up yet. I want to plug your books. I know you're not going to do it. So he's an author of many books. I mean, we have a few of the books out in the back. One of them is Kings and Prophets, one of his recent ones, uh, talking about the natural authority and spiritual authorities between kings and prophets. Very relevant for our time. This book was forwarded by the late Charles Stanley. And one that's very, just as good, Courage to be Healed, Finding Hope to Restore Your Soul. You all have a soul, right? We know that, right? And the importance of restoring that. This was forwarded by John Bevere. And so there's a few other books out there as well. Amazing author. God has really put an anointing to him and pen and writing books. But I am done talking. Dr. Mark Rutland, please stand. Thank you, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Please be seated. Good morning. Well, uh, so many from here, from the staff, came with uh, the Pfeffers to the Leadership Institute that I taught in Atlanta. And it's, so it's nice to see them in their natural habitat. I, uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't know what a great worship leader Ray is. Amen. He, he, was, he was just a student, and your pastor was one of my students. And I, I want to say something to you. He, he behaved in class. You should be proud. Of course, I, I had to call him down for passing notes to his wife a couple of times. But Well, you're a jolly crew. I like that. So many churches are not happy. Laughter has never touched their face. And it's great to see a, a joyful and happy congregation. I'm delighted to be here with you. Let me um, just add one word to the pastor's gracious introduction about our books. Uh, my associate, uh, Ronnie Brennan, is here just in the front. Ronnie, do you mind to stand? This is Ronnie Brennan. <laughs> and he will, he will be happy to meet you at the book table. And I'll come out there as soon as I can do after. But he'll be there when you get there. And... Um, there are other books there in addition to the ones. Particularly, I'd like to recommend David the Great. It's a book about the life and leadership of King David. And it's, it's just been a huge, huge seller for us. Because one thing is we tapped into a reading market that most Christian books don't reach easily. And that is male readers. Um, many Christian books are written by women for women. But regardless of what you girls think, some men can read. Um, we started to put pictures in that one. Uh, 
but uh, it's, it's been a huge seller. Women buy it, women read it, they love it, but, but men, uh, men have really enjoyed David the Great. I hope you'll enjoy all the books there. I think there are four or five different uh, books out there, uh, and I hope you'll get them and enjoy them. Let me say this to you. It probably doesn't matter to you to hear it. It matters to me to say it. I do not take one penny from these books. I never have. We've sold hundreds of thousands of books worldwide. There's no smoke and mirrors. I don't take any money from it. The offering that you're going to take later on, I heard somebody reference it. I didn't know you were going to do that. That does not go to me. I don't take one penny of it. I'm on a salary as the executive director of the NICL. Everything that I bring in in ministry, every penny, goes to support our girls' homes in West Africa and in Thailand. So I hope you'll go out to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. Go home broke. Forget about Dave Ramsey. Refinance your house. Take the children's lunch money. Come on. You are a jolly crew. This is great. Well, it's an international church. I, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, I didn't realize he meant just Faith Christian Center. The whole world is here. Let's, let's, let me see who is here. Okay, if, if, you speak, uh, if you speak Swahili, will you raise your hand? Anybody here from East Africa? Nobody speaks? No? Oh, there we are. All right. Where, I see a hand. Will you please stand up? Where is the, there we are. Okay. Buenas y fiwe. Mungu aku barike. Ah, thank you. All right, let's see. I know there are people here from Nigeria, but there are so many different languages in Nigeria. There are more languages than there are people. And, and the only one I have any of is Igbo. So is there anybody here today that speaks Igbo? Not. I know I met one lady that speaks Yoruba. Um, I'm sorry. I don't, you have to teach me some Yoruba, sister. Come on. No Igbo. Then, good. Nobody here speaks Igbo. Good. You don't know if I'm lying or not. Good. So... God bless you. Chukwumbueze. And then uh, you can say, uh, in Igbo, Igbo is an interesting language. And, and the Igbo people are interesting. No matter what you say in Igbo, it sounds like you're angry. <laughs> that means God loves you and I love you. <laughs> Anybody here from Ghana, West Africa, Ghana? No, no Ghanaians? Oh, they're in the balcony. Oh, fine. Well, in a moment, I tell you, do you speak tree? Okay. Okay. In a moment, we'll pray in tree. Would you like that? All right. Well, let's do pray. Are you ready? First of all, we'll pray in Spanish. Padre bendito celestial, tenemos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana, porque te necesitamos mucho. 
Y por favor glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje. Ayúdame. Lléname con tu Espíritu Santo. Y úsame a su gloria si es posible. Oñame. Me da así pa. Me da o. Una bulle con con. Una bulle fe 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 pa. Una bulle mi conchefo. Me da Lord, I love you. I praise you. I thank you because you're holy and because you, you love me and you care for me and you guide me. Lord, we praise you. Now, Lord, we pray that despite every language in this room, age, generation, national origin, that you will break through every barrier of divine communication. And that you will speak to us that when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, magnify the Lord in the house. Go on and praise Him. Let's praise His holy name. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those, please, and turn to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. It is a small book, a minor prophet, and unfortunately, infrequently read by modern Christians. So infrequently that I see some of you are still thumbing through your Bible looking for Zechariah. If you go to Genesis and turn right, it's going to be a long journey. Go to Matthew and turn left and drive slowly. It's a small book. Go to chapter 4, if you will, please. Zechariah chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading... At verse 6. Now, I think they're going to put it on the screen. Yes, it is. And you see it's from the King James Version. Uh, If you're following me in a more modern translation, it's going to sound different a little bit. I I like the King James Version, particularly in this passage. Uh, The King James, I'm not hung up on the King James Bible. Okay, you don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. One will be given you when you get there. <laughs> but why stand in that long, embarrassing line? Uh, no, um, the kids at the universities used to ask me all the time. They said, President Rutland, why do you always read from the King James Bible? I said, well, the first reason is loyalty. I, I went to high school with King James. We called him Jimmy. He wasn't a king in high school. The second reason is because I'm used to the King James Bible. It's what I grew up on. And all the these and thous that offend everybody else, all that flowery Shakespearean language, it appeals to my heart. I like the sound of that. I can't get used to Jesus coming down to the Sea of Galilee and saying to the disciples, Satin and dudes, I just can't get used to that. I need him to say, whom seekest thou? But in this particular passage, there is one word which is translated in the King James Version, grace. It's the Hebrew word, can it should be grace. But in the modern translations, for some reason, they don't translate it grace. They translate it, God bless it. Now, in a sense, if God graces something, he does bless it. But I I prefer the translation, 
grace. One reason is because this morning I'm going to preach on grace. So this morning we use the translation I choose. Verse 6, then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Pause a moment. Zerubbabel is, the, is an Old Testament type for Jesus, the Prince of Restoration, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Look at the word mountain. In prophetic writing, in, in the prophets, Mountain may mean all kinds of things. What it almost never means is mountain. It can mean a force or an agency of government, a king or a a tyrant or an army, something like that. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. So here's the revised Rutland translation. Who do you think you are? kings and tyrants of the earth. Who do you think you are, armies and nations? When Jesus shows up, you'll be as flat as a tortilla. Moreover, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord said unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Doesn't that sound New Testament? He who has begun a good work in you also shall perform it, shall see it through, shall finish it. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. We thank God for his word. One of the challenges with communication is not just language. It can be generation. So there are people that speak Yoruba that are in their 60s, and they can communicate with people who speak English in their 60s better than English speakers in their 60s can communicate with teenagers who speak English. Because words change in their meaning, especially in English, especially in the United States, and especially now because of technology. There are words that we used, I used in my youth. I still use the word, but they don't mean the same thing. Is there anybody here under the age of 30? Will you raise your hand? Anyone under? I prophesy to you. That if Jesus tarries and you live to be my age, there will be words that you use now and you will still use them, but they won't mean the same thing. Let me see if you know. Does anybody here remember when the English word gay meant happy? I want gay back. Who stole gay? When I was a teenager, I would go to a party. When I came home, my mother would say, did you have a good time? I said, yes, everybody there was gay. (laughs) She wasn't worried. We were just happy. What about at Christmas? Do we not sing this song? Don we now our gay apparel. That doesn't mean Christmas in drag. 
It just means we're happy at the birth of Christ. I spoke to a high school audience in California, which is evidently where the English language will be destroyed. And there were several thousand high school students, and from the opening moment of the sermon, they were with me. I don't know when I've ever spoken to an audience so enthused about the message. Afterward, I was speaking to a group of boys standing right down here. And the first boy said, Dr. Rutland, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you are one sick dude. One can only imagine my affirmation. The fourth boy, not content with these low altitude compliments. He said, you're not just bad. You're not just sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no clue. I called a young friend of mine who came through my leadership institute and he now pastors a hip-hop church, whatever that is. And so I called him and said, look, somebody just told me I was the OG of Crunk. What does it mean? He said, oh, it means, OG means original gangster. So I said, he told me I'm the original gangster of Crunk? He said, yes. I said, okay, but back to my original question. What does that mean? Oh, he said, I assumed you meant you knew what crunk means. I said, no, I don't know what crunk means. He said, well, it means you be the Mac Daddy. I said, Tommy, look, what I'm after is something like a, a definition. What does it mean? He said, Dr. Ellen, I'm trying. He said, it means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. Now, when a society suffers the loss or diminution of its functional vocabulary, to one extent or another, we lose our ability to think. Because we think in words, and when our vocabulary shrinks or becomes twisted in the heat of culture, we lose our ability to think clearly. And we can feel things emotionally, deeply, passionately, but lacking the words with which to formulate the thought and therefore express the thought, it becomes angry and, and um, emotional, but unable to express itself. I can, I can give you an example. The little fifth grade boy who thinks the brown-eyed girl next to him is the cutest thing that he's ever seen in his life. And he wants to tell her that. And he wants to tell her that he really likes her and he'd like her to be his girlfriend. But he can't think of the words. And so he punches her in the mouth. <laughs> that can happen to a whole society. The greater risk is when it happens to our biblical vocabulary. 
when words that we use to think about God and therefore express things about God to each other, when those words become twisted and misapprehended, we may think that we are thinking right about God or speaking correctly about God, and it may be entirely wrong because we've lost track of what the word means. Now, that can happen with the word grace. Sometimes we use grace like agape mayonnaise. If you slop enough of it on anything, it can make rancid ham taste good. But what what does grace mean? The liberal humanist will tell you that grace means God doesn't care about the sin in your life. The legalist, the holiness legalist will tell you that grace means God will make you strong enough to overcome the sin in your life. But that won't work because the Bible tells us it's not by your might nor your power. So the legalist, the the humanist causes us to live under the bondage of sin thinking that everything's okay. And the destructiveness of it is in our lives. The legalist makes us live under the bondage of frustration and failure because we don't have the power to overcome. Grace is God says, I want this out of your life, but I want to get it out. Grace means I want to remove that which is in your life that stands between you and me. So the image is given to us here in the book of Zechariah. Now, that's fascinating to me as a New Testament Christian because I tend, don't you? I tend to think of grace as an, as an especially or perhaps even exclusively New Testament reality. That the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament is about grace. Isn't it interesting then that here in this little minor prophecy is a powerful use of the theology and image of grace. The image is this. We are on one side of a mountain and Jesus is on the other side. We want that mountain gone so that where the mountain is, there would be a flat place, a plain, where he can build a tabernacle, a temple, if you will, where, as Moses said, I will meet with you. So we want that mountain gone. We know that Jesus is our Savior. We pray to receive Him as Christ, uh, receive Christ as Savior. Our name's in the Lamb's book. Our sins are under the blood. Now we think Jesus, our Savior, retreats to the other side of the mountain and expects us to move the mountain. So we spend our, our Christian lives hammering on this mountain. Shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. This year, I'll move that mountain if it kills me. The only problem is what? It'll kill you. If it doesn't put you right straight in a religious loony bin, rocking back and forth in a straitjacket and humming Jesus loves me. Because you don't have them. It's not by might nor by power. You cannot move that mountain. But that doesn't mean God wants the mountain to remain. It means he wants to move it himself. 
But God's a gentleman. You want to hit that mountain? He'll stand right on the parapet of heaven with the angels at his elbows and watch you back up and run at that mountain. And he'll say, here he comes. That boy's going to hurt himself. And then you pow, oh, God said, that's going to leave a scar. Until we finally collapse at the foot of the mountain and we cry out, Lord, are you over there? Because I can't budge this thing. So I quit. Do you hear me? I quit. At that moment, what we think is that from the other side of the mountain, we're going to get a tongue lashing. Because we have projected onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. So we think he's going to say, you big fat sissy. If you can't play with pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. So back up and hit that, hit that mountain again. I played... Uh, High school football, American football. America is the only country in the world that plays football with our hands. But I, I played American football, and uh, I played uh, quarterback on offense. In the old days, we didn't have platoon football. You didn't have offensive and defensive players. You had to play both sides. Anybody, any older men here that played high school football, you know what I'm talking about? And you, you just, you didn't go on and off the field. You just put your helmet on and played till you died. <laughs> so I played quarterback on offense, but on defense, I played free safety. I dreaded our inner squad games because the coach's son was the tailback on our team. And he was the most vicious and lethal runner I ever tried to tackle in my whole career. He, he came at you all helmet and knees and demons. And I was a gentleman. I didn't want to impede Bobby's path to glory. I would have escorted him into the end zone. But Bobby was on a search and destroy mission. He would chase me. Finally, I said, Bobby, I don't understand why you're so hard to tackle. You're not the biggest guy I ever tackled. He said, come home with me after school, and I'll show you why. I was shocked. Nobody went home with Bobby. Not only was he a vicious and lethal runner, he was a vicious and lethal human being. Everybody was scared of Bobby. We thought he was psychotic. I went home with him after school. We went in his garage, and he pulled the metal garage door down. And he said, there's your answer. And the metal garage door looked at about waist high like somebody had been hitting it with a sledgehammer. He said, the day I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad put a helmet on my head, made me bend over at the waist and run headlong into that door. And he said, I've hit it every single day, 365 days a year, birthday, Christmas, New Year's, no exception, every day. And any day I didn't hit it hard enough, my dad would hit my legs with a braided whistle strap until I hit it again. And he said, you run into a metal garage door for about six years. And he said, 158-pound safety just don't look like much. Well, no wonder he was a vicious runner. 
And no wonder he was a vicious human being. That is emotional child abuse of the worst order. For a father to force his son to attempt that over and over again that they both know is impossible and take all that frustration in an in a adolescent male psyche and focus it on the opposition on the football field for his own glory as a coach. Shame, shame. Is that your Jesus? If that's your Jesus, your Jesus is my devil. Do you think Jesus stands behind us with the braided whistle strap of Protestant works righteousness and lashes our bare legs? Do better. Pray more, fast more often. Win more people to me. The ministry is not exempt either, Pastor. There's more than one pastor who's trying to preach good enough to avoid the the lash of of Jesus. Build a bigger church. Build a taller steeple. That is not Jesus. So we collapse at the foot of the mountain and we cry out, Lord, I quit. What do you have to say to that? And from the other side of the mountain... We hear words we never thought we'd hear. Good. That's what I was waiting on, was for you to quit. Now stand back. And then it says this remarkable passage. Jesus shouts. That's a fascinating phrase. Jesus shouts. What does he shout? Does he shout, do better, work harder, memorize more scripture. Follow the rules. Obey the law. No, that's not what he shouts. In fact, he doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And what does he say? Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. Jesus wants the mountain, whatever it is, it's different in everybody's life. Anger, hurt, bitterness, unforgiveness, unresolved conflict, racial prejudice, sin, chronic addiction, alcoholism. Whatever the mountain is, it's different in every life. He wants the mountain out, but he wants to remove it himself. The secret to deliverance is surrender. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. John Wesley said, every place in the Bible where you read the word grace, you could insert the phrase, the Holy Spirit. And every place in the Bible where you see the phrase, the Holy Spirit, you could insert the word grace. So you could translate this passage this way. It's not by might nor by power. It's by my spirit of grace that I will remove the mountain. But... Sometimes we choose to live with that mountain in our lives, battling, struggling with it on and on, year after year, and it makes us graceless. It makes us, can I coin this phrase? Disgraceful. We are disgraceful. There are disgraceful churches. Churches that are angry and judgmental and legalistic, they're disgraceful. I'll tell you about a man... I was preaching in my, the last church I pastored was huge. Eight, eight, nine thousand members. 
And as I came out into the lobby one Sunday morning, this man came up to me and he was so angry he could hardly talk. He said, well, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? He said, because of the lie that you told in the pulpit this morning. He said, I heard you. I heard you. I said, what lie are you talking about? He said, you talked about a certain battle that happened in World War I. And you said that battle happened in 1916. He said, I happen to be an expert in American military history. And I know that battle didn't happen until 1917. He said, a man that a lie about a thing like that would lie about anything. And I can't go to church where there's a liar in the pulpit. I said, well, bye. <laughs> no, I mean, adios. I cannot fix that for you. It is disgraceful to put judgment on people's mistakes and make them sins. That is disgraceful. But let me tell you about another man in the same church. A great friend of mine. He's still a friend of mine. An attorney who was so full of grace every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. We had night church in those days. We were Christians back then. And every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night Bible study, every time I came out of that pulpit, he was waiting for me. And that attorney would say, oh, Dr. Rutland, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. Now, look, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I know that nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece three times a week, year after year after year. I know that at an intellectual level, but I like that lawyer lying to me. When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. Why? Because I wanted some grace. I wanted some grace. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, we can't do that with Pastor Chris. Oh, his ego. We pump. Oh, we can't do that. Go on and pump. There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. I've... I've now been in the ministry for more than a half a century and I've decided that the entire race of Christianity is divided into only two tribes, pumpers and poppers. <laughs> I believe God's eyes move to and fro through the earth looking for a church full of pumpers where he can pour out his grace. God, God wants a church full of grace. We, we not only disgrace churches and disgrace pastors, we disgrace our own families. We disgrace our families. We live in judgment and criticism. Parents, why do we pick at our children, complain about them and call, call out little things? When I was at ORU... A man came to see me in my office and he said, I want to talk to you about my son. We had thousands of students. I didn't know them all. But he named his son. I happened to know him. I said, oh, I know that boy. What a wonderful boy. He played one of our worship teams. He was a chaplain in the dorm. I said, he's a great kid. He said, I know, I know. That's not why I'm here. I said, well, why are you here? He said, I'll tell you why I'm here. It's that earring. He said, I want you to make him take that earring out. 
He said, I've asked him and told him and begged him and ordered him and he won't move that earring. He said, I want you to make him take it out. I wanted to say, look, sir, you had him 18 years. I've had him three semesters. Why is it my job? But I felt that man was not in a place to hear that line of logic. So the next day I called the boy in my office. And I said, do you know who was in my office yesterday? He said, yes. And I know why he was here. He wants you to make me take this earring out. I said, son, your dad is a piece of work. He said, oh, Dr. Rutland, he said, this earring is standing between us. My dad looks at me. He can't even see me. His own son. All he can see is that earring. I said, isn't that terrible? He said, it is terrible to let an earring stand between you and somebody you love. I said, oh, that's so wrong. It's, it's immature and childish. He said, it is immature and childish. He said, oh, I know what you're doing. I said, look, son, one of you is going to have to be an adult. And I met your dad. He said, you know, I never thought about it from his point of view. He said, I only thought about it from my side. He said, you're right. I have let an earring stand between me and my own father. I've never been so proud of a college student in my life. He reached up and took that earring out, put it on my coffee table, and he said, my dad will never see that earring again as long as I live. Now, I'm old. I mean, look up here. Boys wearing earrings. I got to tell you, am I the only one? You ever just want to take that out of your ear and give it to your sister? On the other hand, we make big deals out of little deals. We make mountains out of molehills and we disgrace relationships which are fundamental to our lives. When we came home from Africa, my, our little boy was nine. He wanted to be an American. He wanted to do an American thing. He joined the Little League. Oh God, what a demonic experience. I don't mean the little boys. I'm talking about the dads. Some big old fat slob sitting up in the stands yelling at his nine-year-old on the baseball field. Keep your eye on the ball, stupid. I just wanted to climb up there and say, hey, keep your eye on this sport. That's disgraceful. That is disgraceful. I'm going to tell you something. There's more than one young woman in America who suffers from anorexia because of an unkind word from her father. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. We disgrace disgrace our, our own spouses. We disgrace our own spouses. Listen to me. Where are the married men? We raise your hand. All the married men, I'm going to help you today. Your wife comes in with a dress that she bought at the shopping mall. She's modeling that dress for you. 
She says, look what I bought at the mall today. She didn't want you to peer over the top of the sports page. How much did that cost? I'm going to confiscate your credit card. She's modeling that dress for you. She walks out and says, look what I bought. You throw that newspaper aside and jump to your feet and you say, whoa. Mm. Woman, look at you. You wear that on Wednesday night. And we're going to be late to prayer meeting. Now, now that's grace. That's grace. That's what she wants to hear. Now, wives, I've got a word for you. Where are all the married girls? Raise your hand. Listen to Dr. Mark. I'm going to help you. My wife and I have been married 56 years. 56 years. Even at all that, when I leave to go off to some godforsaken foreign country, Massachusetts or something, then... My wife will put her little hands on my cheeks and she says, oh, Mark, you are the handsomest, sexiest man I've ever seen. Look, look up here. I live in the real world. But it's a blessing from God to have a lawyer and a woman that will both lie to you. That's grace. Listen to me, girls. Your husband and God have something in common. I saw one woman in the back say, this is, this is why I came right here. No, it's true. The Bible says God has numbered the hairs on your husband's head. So has your husband. And he does not need you to remind him that the number is diminishing annually. Marriages should be filled with grace. Homes filled with grace. Churches filled with grace. The worst is, we disgrace ourselves. We live in judgment and condemnation where there is none from God. We judge ourselves. We condemn ourselves. Not just sin, little circumstantial stuff, stupid stuff. We look into the full-length mirror of self-evaluation and we despise what we see. We say, look at you. What happened to you? Where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fat? We disgrace our own selves. We, we live in judgment and condemnation over who we are. All the time. When it comes to sin, it's even worse. We say, yes, have you ever heard this? If you have ever heard this, I know after this you'll never hear. Say it again. And anybody else that says it to you, you're going to know what to say. Have you ever heard it? I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You know what the theological answer to that is? Here it is. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What an arrogant and presumptuous and disgraceful statement. That the God of the universe has forgiven you 
and you can't forgive yourselves, are you then a better judge than God is? Are you a more righteous judge than God is? When God says you're forgiven, that's, no, that settles it. You don't get a vote. You don't get a vote. We, we judge ourselves. Listen, everybody in life is going to, sooner or later, is going to do some stupid thing that makes you feel stupid. If you haven't ever raised up under an open cabinet door and knocked your brains out, if you haven't done that yet, just wait, you will. Sooner or later, everybody bumps their head. Now, when that's your spouse, listen to Dr. Mark. Thou shalt not laugh. Thou shalt show sympathy until you're alone. Then you can laugh. But if you're the one that bumps his head, you need to laugh. You need to laugh. Listen to me, my friend. Look up here, everybody. There's something funny about you. We can all see it. And you need to get in on the joke. We take ourselves too seriously. I know we have people here speak all kinds of languages. Does anybody know what the English word humdinger means? It's a, it's a, it's a colloquialism. It means something wonderful, something fantastic, something marvelous, a humdinger. I have a good friend who pastors in another Pentecostal denomination. And he told me one of the funniest church stories I've ever heard in my life. You know the funniest stuff in the world happens in church, right? You're not living in that level of denial, are you? And you know the funniest churches in the world are spirit-filled. You do know that, right? He said that he invited a certain evangelist to preach at his church. And this lady came to him who was one of these self-proclaimed prophetesses. You know, they've all got the red phone to heaven. And uh, you have any prophetesses? No? Oh, we'll send you some. Into every life a little rain must fall. She came to the pastor and she said God had revealed to her that the evangelist wasn't supposed to come. And the pastor said exactly what he should have said. He said, well, he hadn't revealed it to me. And until he does, the evangelist is coming. You don't have to be here. You don't have to affirm it. But the evangelist is coming until God speaks to me. She wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. The first night, the evangelist started preaching about five minutes into his sermon. That old lady stepped out in the center aisle and raised her hand up and pointed in the evangelist's face. And she said, whoa, thus saith the Lord. Thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger. But thou art not a humdinger, saith the Lord. Thou art a dinger. Oh my God, Pastor, what did you do? He said, Dr. Rutland, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing in life had prepared me for that moment. And he said, I, I just froze. He said it was the evangelist who saved the day. He looked at her for a moment. Then he put his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. And he said it just lanced the boil. 
When he started laughing, people over here started laughing over here. Then the musicians are laughing. That's usually where the problem comes, right there. And laughter in a church will feed itself. And he began to laugh and laugh. It broke. And that old lady slammed her Bible shut and went up to buy the exit sign and raised her hand. And she said, I'll never darken the doors of this church again. The pastor said, Dr. Rutland, it was the hour of deliverance. (laughs) Now, here's the strange thing. Listen to me on this. That old lady was right about one thing. She was right. Look up here. Thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. Thus saith the Lord. Thou hast done dinger stuff. Thou art not finished. But saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness, and I love thee just the same. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Look, I'm going to free you up this morning. I want you to turn to someone near you, not your spouse. I want you to turn to someone near you, look them in the eye and say, I'm not perfect. Go on, do it. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. Isn't that wonderful? Cat's out of the bag. Now I'm going to shock you. Are you ready? Turn back to that same person and say, I already knew that. You see, all that, all that effort, all that psychological, emotional, and spiritual effort to make everybody think we're a humdinger, and nobody believed it from the beginning. No, look, what does all this say? God is a God of grace. He wants churches that are filled with grace mercy and love. He wants Christians that can grace each other. I came around the corner of a building at ORU one time. Just came around. There was a boy standing there, a college boy, holding some books in his hand. And I said, hey, you handsome, how you doing? And he dropped them all. Dropped all the books. I said, well, did I scare you? He said, well, President Rutland, kind of you did. He said, I'm 22 years old. Nobody has ever told me I was handsome. How could that happen? Where's his mother? Where's his dad? Where's his pastor? How could could a Christian boy get to 22 and nobody ever told him he was handsome? He was shocked by grace. I believe that many, many Christians would be shocked, shocked to find out the real nature of the grace of God. I think we would be stunned to find out just how amazing God's grace really is. Now, let me close with this. You've been very patient. Suppose there was somebody here this morning that had never been to church, knew nothing about Christianity at all, and said, I want to know about Christianity. I want to know what God is like. So we gave him a Bible. Excuse me. We gave him a Bible. And we said, here, read this. It'll tell you all about God. And they start reading. 
and they're just beginning to get hope. They're beginning to get excited about who God is. And they come to the end of the Bible, the last verse in the Bible. And what if the last verse of the Bible said, Thus saith the Lord, I hate all of you. That'd be pretty devastating, wouldn't it? Or what if it said this, I'm going to let some of you come to heaven and some of you go to hell, but I'm not going to tell you which ones or how I choose. Isn't that threatening? How does the whole Bible end? The whole Bible, you come to the end of it. And God says, listen, I've been saying this since the first page of Genesis. I said it through Moses. I said it through the law. I said it through the prophets. I said it through my son. I said it through the apostles. I said it on every page of the epistles. I've said it over and over and over again. And now as we end the Bible, I'm going to say it one more time. And here's how the Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, all the time, all the way. Look right up here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. God bless you and God bless this precious church.